Well, thank you for the invite. Um, so let's start uh, in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I ask our Heavenly Mother's blessing on us this evening, as we say together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so uh, it's a great pleasure for me to come and talk to you tonight. I am talking about one of my, um, in a sense, favourite topics. Um, I'm talking about moral theology. Um, so I teach moral theology in um, one of the seminaries, uh, one seminary outside Guildford. Um, and this title might seem a bit obscure, Post-Vatican II Morality. Um, so post-Vatican II morality, I'm wanting to talk about morality, but in terms of a historical perspective. Um, if I was to ask you or ask most people what morality was, they would probably say it's about right and wrong, it's about ethics, it's about laws, as in moral laws, what you can do, what you can't do. So they would probably define it in terms of legalism. And what I'm going to try and introduce you to tonight is a vision of moral theology that actually is more than just about obeying the law. And we're going to look at this historically. So this is a vision of the Second Vatican Council. Um, none of us were alive back then, but a lot happened back then. A lot changed back then, yeah? We're going to trace a journey from legalism through chaos to what is the thing I focus on in my teaching of moral theology, virtue, which is a completely different paradigm to the law as the focus of what the thing is about. So, um, historical background. Um, some of you, I gather, follow Susan from the Parish Council. Um, Susan is not a real person. She's a, a satirical figure uh, created by someone, I'm guessing your age, who likes to mock old people. Um, mock old people, um, in particular in this context, one of the things Susan is always complaining about is how bad things were before the council, how awful things used to be. Um, and young people who are often in her perspective wanting to go back to what was thrown away, what was lost, and she's saying, no, it was terrible when I was a child. Well, one of the things I want to hope to give you a bit of a sense of tonight is why it is that people like Susan are so unhappy. Why it is, in a sense, that there is something that was wrong before, that there's a reason Susan is angry. So, I want us to touch on what morality was like before the council, what happened briefly after the council, and what, in a sense, would be a renewed, improved, authentic vision of the moral life for us today. So, why is she angry? What is she reacting to? That's what we, in a sense, need to start by knowing. So here's a vision of what the moral life was like before the council. Yeah, there's sister with a ruler keeping you in line. 
And when old people complain to you about how bad things were before the council, they will often very frequently tell you how they were beaten with a ruler. Um, this picture does sum up a lot of what people felt the moral life was about. What was the church doing? The church was telling you in an angry, unpleasant way what you had to do. There's nothing positive in that picture. Then came the Second Vatican Council, 1960s. What came after the council? Well, after the council, pretty much the mood of the age was anything went. And the kind of Catholics who grew up in that era, even many of those who were nominally Catholic and even still going to Mass, will still have imbued this attitude that we've got rid of sister, she's thrown away her habit, the ruler's no longer there, we can do what we like. Um, so you kind of went from one thing to another. Um, now, neither of those is actually an authentic vision of the council. So the council came along because there was actually something wrong beforehand. So where are we today, I've asked that question. Are we in a state of progress, regress, going back to the past, return? Um, in what I teach in moral theology, we are in a phase of returning, reviving, not the 1950s, but um, St. Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period. And so we would look um, to his model of the moral life in which the central question is about virtue rather than the central question being about law. Yeah, so is it, what is your pivotal concern? That makes a difference. So this picture I'm going to come back to as an image. Um, somebody reaching, uh, in a sense, reaching for the sun. Um, that isn't an image of the law. The law would more be something you are hiding from or fearing, yeah? This is a vision where you are concerned about what you are aiming for. And this is going to be my starting point and everything I'm going to want to outline for you. So, um, a couple things I'm going to want to outline. The law, I'm saying, isn't arbitrary. Um, I'm going to say we're made for happiness. And I'm going to talk about virtue as being the possession of beatitude. So what are you reaching for? You're reaching all of us to be happy. That's what we want in life. Theologically, more deeply, what is real happiness? It's that blessedness in the life of God that we're made for, that we yearn for, even before we know there is a God. And the law has a place, um, but the law isn't the end in itself. So, um, I want us to start with asking the question, why is something good? What do we mean when we call something good? Because everybody uses the word good, um, but what does it mean to call something good? Well, one way of answering the question is to say, it's good because I say so. Um, so I'm sure we can all remember 
um, there being an age when you were a child and you might ask a question and you might just have an angry parent say, because I say so. Or sister with her ruler answers the question, why, with because I say so. And there's a way of answering the question, what is good and what is bad, by saying, because I say so. And in that model, what becomes important is obeying, because I say so, and obeying the law, keeping the law. Now, a more authentic answer to the question why something is too good is to consider what its purpose is. And so here I've got a vision of a, a railroad track. Um, if you want to get somewhere in your train, you've got to stay on the track. Not because you love the track, but because going off the track and you're instantly nowhere. Um, you've failed to fulfill your purpose. A train gets somewhere by the track. Um, so in this paradigm, your models are fulfillment or perversion, when you fail to fulfill. So obedience isn't really a question in this model, whereas it's the central question here. You kind of with me so far? Um, now, I'm going to, those of you, I think there are a few philosophers here tonight, um, so you've probably heard this question before. Is something good because God says so, or does God say so because it's good? Uh, William of Ockham uh, in the Middle Ages asked this question. He considered this question. Can God command you to hate him? Yeah, so if God can command anything, because he's free, can he command you to hate him? Now, the Catholic answer would be no, that it's, um, that God is love. God cannot command something that contradicts his very self. Um, but in, in a sense, in our modern mindset, where freedom is the dominant thing, then God has to be free, then God must be able to command you to hate him. Um, so William of Ockham said that God could command you to hate him, and if, you, if he did command you to hate him, then that would then be good, because that's what God says. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, and in a sense the older tradition, would root itself in the being of something, in the nature of something. And God says something because that's what he's made it to be, how he's made it. That he is rational, he has created things rationally. Um, what nature is, is according to his reason. What he commands, therefore, isn't arbitrary. He can't contradict him, his own self. So when he commands us to do something, it isn't just a random law. So if your vision of the law is just because I said so, then you've not really grasped the bigger package of why he's saying so. That really the law is 
a revelation of how he's made things. It's like showing you where the railway track is. It's not just sister beating you with a ruler. Okay, so I'm going to outline three stages in an argument here. I'm going to first consider what is a good thing. This is all about the question, what is good? What is a good thing? Then, what is a good act, action? We're concerned about morality, what people do. And then, more broadly, a good person. Yeah? So all of this is considering goodness, um, but starting with what is a good thing. So here's a watch. How do you know whether this is a good watch or not? Anyone? Accurately. Accurately. It keeps time, keeps time accurately. Um, you'd also want to say something to do with the difference between a watch and a clock, to do with its size, its weight, yeah? It fulfills its function. Exactly. So any of those answers are all talking about good with respect to function. It is a good watch if it achieves the function of a watch. So anything, when we say it's good, we've got to know what its function is. A good pen. It's a good pen if it writes well. If it looks beautiful, but it doesn't write, well, it's a lovely work of art, but it's not a good pen. Yeah, so when we say something is good, we need to know what its function is. A good action. Well, thinking of that same thing, what is the function of the action? If you're going to call it good, you've got to know what its purpose is, its function is. Now, here we have somebody eating. So we've got to ask the question, what is the purpose of eating, the function of eating. Now we in the West today have so much food that we kind of rarely think of the function of eating in terms of nutrition. We think of it in terms of pleasure all the time. Does it taste good? Does it... It's all about pleasure. Um, whereas for most of humanity, even today, the real question with respect to eating, its function, is about nutrition. So a good act of eating is related to whether it's serving its function, nutrition. So I won't have time to look at this in depth, but um, if you look to Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas building on him, they would say every good action has a pleasure that goes with it, that is a sign of its completion, but you don't do it for the pleasure isolated from the action, that if you try to separate them, you actually fail to achieve either. So you need to know the function, the purpose, the end, the telos, to use the Greek, of the activity. You know the function. If you've achieved it, then the action is good. So, if he has 
10 burgers, then he's not eating well. He has exceeded nutrition. He has gluttonously stuffed himself with pleasure. Uh, he will feel quite uncomfortable afterwards. Um, there will be, in a sense, bodily signs, indicators that the goal hasn't been achieved, that the function hasn't been observed. Whereas if he's eaten the right amount, a healthy amount, there'll be a proper pleasure that will accompany the achieving of the goal of proper healthy nutrition. So is the action good? The answer lies in whether it's achieved the function of the action. Okay, so a good act achieves its end. Um, I've focused here on the question of eating rather than giving you a picture of sexual morality um, for obvious reasons. But um, with sex also, we could consider something that you can consider even almost at a physical level its function, its purpose, in terms of indicating that some purposes just contradict the dignity of the person, the fact that this is... There are all kinds of things that indicate this is more than just a physical interaction. It's affecting you at a personal level. Okay, a good action achieves its function. A bad action doesn't achieve its function. It contradicts its function. It perverts its function. A good person. Now, a good person, you might pretty obviously say, is going to have done many good actions. Those good actions will all be oriented, though, to the ultimate function of what a person is. Yeah, so if a, a watch is good, if it achieves the function of a watch, if an act of eating is good, if it achieves the function of eating, a person is good if she's achieved the function that persons exist for. So what function does a human person exist for? So, she achieves her end in God. Um, I've said here, all sub-activities are related to that final end. So the saint eats in a way that she finds God in her eating. A saint cleans in such a way that she finds God in her cleaning. That in every activity, the completion of that function, she's also achieving her final end, yeah? So what I'm saying here has some presuppositions. It presupposes that there are inbuilt purposes in human activities, right? Now, if we are fundamentalists and we believe in a seven-day creation with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, then it's easy to, in a sense, map out your function of all the different bits of you is given to you by God in those seven days. Um, I, as I think I've said to you, a couple of you at least, studied mathematical physics before seminary, uh, I approach everything scientifically. Um, evolution, though, also indicates 
that there are functions in our activity. So why does a rabbit have big ears in order to hear, in order to enable it to, in its function in the environment, it, all those bits have a, um, a purpose, a teleology. So I'm just, in a sense, acknowledging very briefly that in what I'm outlining here, it only works if you see that there are inbuilt purposes in the human person and in the different activities of the human person. Okay. Now, I've said here, no one's going to tell me how to live my life. Yeah, this is a kind of modern phrase you'll hear people say quite freely without even thinking about it. Who are you to tell me how to live? Um, who are you to tell me what my inbuilt human purposes are? And yet people will also like to use a word like fulfillment. Um, well, I feel I'm living, I feel very fulfilled today. Well, you can't be fulfilled unless there is a purpose you are being fulfilled in. Um, which means there's some purpose built into you. So where this is kind of needing to focus is the question of what is the human end. So instead a watch has a function, that's pretty easy to think about. Well, if you as a human being have a function or an end, what is that? And how on earth could we look to find it? Yeah. You will die. That's not your purpose. So Aristotle looks at this question and he says, let's look at what human beings strive for. Uh, and he looks at all human beings and he says, what they all want is they all want to be happy. And they might define happiness differently and they might look for happiness in different places. But he says, everybody wants to be happy. Yeah. Uh, that's a very brief summary of a long argument he gives. But, so the human end is happiness. But we've got to know, in order to, in a sense, get a useful answer to that, what real happiness is, where it's going to be found. Yeah? I think a synonym of happiness would be love. That's probably like obvious. But... Um... Well, St. Thomas and others would say love, or rather happiness, um, is a fruit of love. Yeah. Um, so, when I'm looking for happiness, um, to me, happiness and love and good kind of all look like they're different things. But in God, they're all one. So the quest in me for happiness is actually a quest for God, who is love. And when I love, I am participating in God's life. Uh, I am fulfilling my function. I am um, being good. And that's not just because there's a random command saying do this, but that good is about achieving the function that is built into me. Okay.
So, human hand and happiness. And that vision of the, the hand striving, reaching for something. We all want to be happy. Even the moody teenager sulking is somehow getting a pleasure out of the being in a sulk. Uh, it's a very low level of happiness, a very reduced vision of happiness, but somehow getting some pleasure out of sulking. We all reach for whatever happiness we think we can get. We, we want to be happy. It's built into us. That is our end. So St. Augustine, if you ever read his Confessions, he says, all people desire joy. He says, all people agree in desiring the last end, which is happiness, and the Latin is beatitude. Though he notes humans disagree as to where they think they will find happiness. Aristotle and St. Thomas map out all the different things people look for happiness in and says neither wealth nor honours nor fame nor glory nor power nor pleasure. People think that they'll get those and then they'll be happy. But none of these quite clench the deal. The only good that can satisfy must be, they say, a comprehensive good that would include all goods, include all of these, and so human happiness consists in God alone, who in his very self has all these things in him. And so this desire for happiness that is within me, even when I don't realise it, is actually a desire for God. Okay, so staying what I've said already, the human person is judged good with respect to achieving this end or not. A happy person, this is a good person. Joy, therefore, is the sign of a saint. So, you know, we read in the spiritual books, whenever you read the biography of a saint, the saints are always full of joy. Um, Frank Sheed in the 20th century wrote a famous book called Saints Are Not Sad. This is a quote um, from St. Josemaria. He says, the man in love is a man with joy in his heart. So any of you, when you, you know, so a friend, someone's got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you don't need to tell them to be happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, the man in love has joy in his heart just naturally. Uh, and the more real that love is, the more real the joy is. So there's a kind of selfish love that isn't real love, that's actually just my enjoying somebody for my sake. The more we are loving someone for their sake, a real love brings a deeper joy a more authentic possession of what it is in the life of God itself, himself. Okay, so I want to come back to the question of the law. So, where did we begin? We began with Susan. 
and all the people that were angry about what they grew up with before the council. And I've tried to map out to you a vision of the moral life that doesn't actually depend on talking about the law, that actually focuses on the question of what is your purpose, what is your inbuilt end, and the saint, the one we're aiming to be like, is the person that achieves that. And love is the measure of that. But where does the law then fit in? Well, the law we find in lots of different places in religion and philosophy. In Islam, uh, the word Islam means submission, yeah. Um, I'm told in most universities these days, to be religious, people generally think you mean, that means someone who's Islamic, yeah? There's probably more Muslims on the campus than Christians. Don't know whether Exeter is as true as other places that way, but... Anyway, a lot of Islam out there. Law-keeping is a dominant thing in their structure. Historically, um, the next thing that comes along in terms of philosophy is this thing, a thing called nominalism that says there are no natures, so you don't have the nature of a watch, you don't have the nature of a person, you don't have the nature of an action. All you're left with is obeying, obeying what God says. And therefore, to use that example I looked at earlier, God can command you to hate him. And you obey him because he told you to hate him, so you hate him. Protestantism um, similarly focuses on obedience. So you obey scripture rather than obeying reason. Um, they'd have the Ten Commandments rather than the natural law, which is a codification of reason. Um, so there's a lot out there in the world that focuses on the law. And in the build-up to the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic reaction against all of those actually phrased itself in terms of the law in arguing against these positions. But it meant that the law became the focus rather than the oldest tradition in St. Augustine, St. Thomas, Aristotle before that, before Jesus, of being the question of virtue and fulfillment. So when Susan grew up, what was being focused on was the law. And she had sister beat her with the ruler, told her to obey. Um, law keeping was the focus. And if we ask the question, is law the purpose of life? Well, pretty obviously, no. That law has a purpose, but life doesn't we don't live in order to keep the law. Here we have a skeleton without a body. Um, so when I teach in the seminary, I repeatedly use the image of the skeleton as the law. Um, if you have a skeleton, um, that isn't a very healthy-looking person. Yes, we all agree that isn't a healthy-looking person. Um, the image of the moral life before the council focused on the law 
in a way that it would be a bit like a medical student focusing on the skeleton. You want to have a healthy skeleton, but the skeleton isn't the purpose of the body. And if all you have is a healthy skeleton, you don't actually have a healthy person. You just have a skeleton. But what happens if you have a body without a skeleton? Yeah? Um, you just have a blob. And I said, is freedom the purpose of life? Because if you just have a body without the constraints of the law, without the constraints and limits of a skeleton, then that's all you have. Um, so freedom, if you just view it as being liberated from something, from the skeleton, also gets you nowhere. So you don't just want a skeleton. You don't just want a blob of free flesh. This is what you want. Um, so the perfect fulfilled life here in the middle. Um, so the moral life needs the structure of the law. So you want the law, but the law isn't an end in itself. So if you come back to that image I had early on in the talk of, of the railway line, if you don't have the railway line, the train just goes off and it gets nowhere. Um, it doesn't get to the end. It doesn't get to the purpose. It doesn't get to fulfillment. If you have the body without the skeleton, you get nothing. If you get the skeleton without the body, you also have failed to grasp what it's about. We want both. Um, but that the law isn't a purpose in itself. Okay, back to sister. Um, so virtue, um, St. Um, Paul in his epistles refers to the law as being a tutor. The law teaches us. We need the law to teach us. So despite everything I've said, I'm not saying we should get rid of the law. We need the law. Um, so St. Paul says, exactly, the law is the tutor bringing me to, to Christ. So if I ask the question, who taught me to be good? Who taught me not to hit my little sister? I needed to be taught these things. Um, I was capable of knowing that it wasn't right to hit my little sister. But being capable of something doesn't mean... Um, you don't, um, the things we're able to know that it's easier to know when we're told them. So there are all kinds of things. When we talk in Catholic theology of the natural law, we're naturally able to know all kinds of things. But God comes from heaven to earth and teaches us those same things in order that we might know them easily. So... We need the law as a tutor. Um, said here, the moral law is found in reason, natural law, and revelation. So revelation, 
the Bible, sacred tradition, God has spoken. Um, naturally, we are able to know right and wrong. We're able to know the law um, and we're able to know it because of reason. So these things are able to give us the moral law, um, but all three reinforce each other. Okay, final issue I want to touch on with you um, is the question of the passions. So I've given you an image of um, Arnie there with his muscles as an image of the fulfilled person, yeah? Um, well, and I've talked about the body and I've talked about the skeleton. I want to talk about the passions. There's an element within us that we call the passions that is bodily, at least in part, but it's more than just bodily. But there's something within me that moves me, is pushing me, um, that we call the passions. And even before I choose whether or not I'm going to go with my passions, there's a movement within me that is my passions. And that's a big part of how we experience life and all kinds of things. You, uh, what's the image I've got here? Okay, so, um, donuts or the carrots? Which is going to be good for you? Sure. <laughs> um, so I've said here the passions can mislead us. Now, one donut a day isn't going to be a problem or isn't going to be a problem for most of us. Um, the problem is my passions can easily move me to more than one donut. And in particular, if every morning I wake up and I have five donuts for breakfast. Um, now, the first morning I might feel a little funny having done that. Um, but if I do that one morning and then another morning and another, I will habituate my body and habituate my passions until it kind of feels natural to me. My passions will be trained until they reach a stage where they instinctively think that five donuts is, is normal. Um, so the thing about the passions is that we can train them can train them in a good way or we can train them in a bad way. So most of us have an idea of what a normal size is for a portion on our plate. That we will have, over many years, trained ourselves by repetition for what is a normal-looking size. And when I do scoop out a thing onto my plate and it looks normal to me. There's a type of normal that is my passions, judging that is normal, that's what I'm wanting. Whereas if you went to Weight Washers and you did your calorie count and you compared that to the amount of walking you have to do on the campus and how many calories you're gonna burn in a typical day, and you can do a whole calculation of what is the right size portion on your plate. That's reason, measuring it all out. 
And if you measure that all out once, then that your reason is making a judgment about the function of the eating being achieved, the nutrition being achieved. But if you have done that measurement once, and then the next day also, you can reach a stage where your bodily will just instinctively reach for the right amount. And at that stage, your passion will have been trained to be virtue. Yeah, so that these passions within us aren't just random, they aren't just static, they are moldable, formable. And it's by repetition that we train our passions, repetition that we grow in virtue. Repetition also, sadly, that we grow in vice. So if you do something wrong once, and then you do it wrong again, and again and again, you will train your passion to move you to the wrong thing. Um, let's take a final example, um, anger, yeah? So there's some people that get angry very quickly, and there's some people that get angry very slowly. There's an aspect of that that is born into us in terms of our, even at a biological level, our temperaments are different. Um, but there's also an aspect in which we train ourselves by repetition by how we're going to respond to things. And I can train myself to get angry quickly by always responding or by repeatedly restraining myself. I can train myself so that I get angry slower. Um, so there are all kinds of different passions within us, not just about eating, not just about sex. But by repetition, doing something right, not just once, but again and again, we train our bodies, our passions, our souls, so that we yearn for the right thing. And that we no longer need to be looking to the law to measure it out for me, because that measure has become internal. So the law is still there, but I'm not needing to continually check back to it because I've habituated myself to perform it. Okay, passions and virtue. The passions can mislead us or they can be formed by repetition of good acts, which gives us virtue. Virtue is a stable disposition to do the good and the virtues are trained to direct us to our end. This word here, stable, um, that's the whole thing that the repetition does. It, it trains you so that this inclination is stable. It always remains movable. You can still fall. Um, but the inclination will be, if you've trained yourself in it, you'll have this inclination to the right thing in this particular action. So, summarising what I've been saying. Post-Vatican II morality. We went from legalism through the chaos of the 60s and then there's this period of revival that um, is going on at least in some parts of the church where the, the paradigm has become virtue. The paradigm is fulfilment. Um, achieving the end, where I need to have the law because that gives me the direction. It's like the skeleton. 
skeleton serving the body, but that the law isn't the purpose in itself. So why is Susan angry? Because all she was presented is, was with the law. All she was told was to obey. She wasn't given much of a sense of vision, fulfillment, purpose. Um, after the Council of the Hippies, they were, had all kinds of thought, quests for being free, but a freedom without a purpose and direction. What we want is a vision of the moral life that has all of these together. And that's the life of virtue.